living that what are they yeah you can google that hi this is agan wukash and this is catching the next wave podcast where we discuss the future of design and much more Our today guest, Bernd Merbeek, is an innovator and a team leader, combining a strong focus on experience research with technical knowledge, creativity, and analytical skills. It's a whole package, isn't it? Oh, yeah. We share past experience of studying at the User System Interaction Master Program at the Eindhoven University of Technology. And we both continued with this adventure by following with PhD, burned slightly later than myself. His PhD dissertation topic sounds really amazing. Studies on user control in ambient intelligence systems. We will unpack some of it, right? Oh yeah, we have to. Yeah. And he was awarded cum laude for it. So we definitely have to get some I I didn't know that. Late, but still sincere. Congratulations. Bern has spent most of his professional career, apart from the university, at Philips. First at Philips Research and then at Philips Lighting. And when Philips Lighting became Signify, it was two or three years ago, he became the product owner for IoT solutions and the research and development manager for UX and Living Labs. He is a strong creative innovator and at the same time a supportive leader recognized for building bridges between R&D and business. Not an easy thing to oh, do. Oh no. Between user needs and technology solutions, another challenge, and between scientific knowledge and practical applications. This one is toughy. A renaissance man, huh? <laughs> oh yeah. Bern, so awesome to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to talk to you again after so many years. It's been a while, yeah. Let's start unpacking living labs. What are they? Could you explain it to our listeners? It's a concept that started with the vision of ambient intelligence. And I'm pretty sure you have heard about that before. It was in the early 2000s, I think this vision was launched, where the idea is that you have all kinds of smart systems in your environments, right? And so in, in our daily environments would be occupied with all kinds of smart devices. The term living labs emerged from that period where the idea was that ambient environments that are smart, you need to test that with people in the real environment because it's very different than uh, a single product, for example. So that's why uh, the term was introduced. And basically it's a kind of a, what you would call a co-creation space where you have people that you invite to such a living lab and together explore new use cases with new technology, new concepts. It's all about exploration and experimentation. So it's not really a done deal yet. It's typically in a very early stage of innovation. Yeah, and there you test out uh, together with your end user, basically new scenarios, as you said in your introduction. So my role now is also as a manager of user experience and living labs in Signify. Let's say uh, our group, our team is on the one hand creating these living labs. So these uh, environments in the real world where we can test typically our new connected lighting systems with end users in the field. So half of my team basically is realizing these living labs in the real world. And the other half of the team is capable of doing research with people. And mm. so that are UX researchers more with a background uh, similar to what we have learned uh, at school uh, a while ago. But is it a place, this living lab, like home lab used to be in uh, like early 
2000s or is it a concept and then you can basically install it anywhere? I would say it's more a concept than a place. Yes? So indeed, we still have a home lab, actually. Uh, it moved a couple of times in these years, the two decades, I think. So yes, the home lab now is also part of my group and my team. So we have such a, a place uh, still. But what we see actually more and more happening is that we tend to create these spaces also really at the customer sites. Eh? So especially when and we do a lot of work for uh, more B2B type of applications. So think about lighting to grow plants or tomatoes, light in big uh, industry warehouses. Of course, when we want to study new concepts in these environments, yeah, nothing is better than really going into these real contexts and environments and install your living lab in those places. And so it, it, we have a few of these living labs on our premises, on our uh, site at the, uh, the Heider campus in Eindhoven. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've been there before. <laughs> no, 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 never. <laughs> Come and visit us so one day. You yeah, no, maybe, maybe. <laughs> An open invitation to, uh, to both Thank of you. you. Yeah. If this COVID thing goes down, we could uh, do our, you know, yearly trip there. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> You're always welcome. Uh, maybe after COVID, but, uh, let's see. Yeah, we see more and more happening also at, at customer sites. So our team is then going to a customer, installs a bunch of sensors or lighting solutions there, creates such a living lab where we can do our research at the location. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because when we've been studying so many years ago, my goodness, testing was about the product, right? And what you said right now, it's more about the scenarios and experiences than about the products, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that is a big change that we have seen in, in our fields, right? This focus in the beginning on products. And I think after that, you saw really a big change into uh, digital or online experiences. What I see now happening, actually, at, at least in our work, we are combining both the physical and the digital aspects. Yeah? So I'm working in a, in a sector that is called IoT applications. So we're all about investigating experiences that have a physical component as well as a digital component. And I think that's makes this, uh, this work so exciting, right? Because that's completely different and new than just a product interaction or just an online interaction. Uh, totally. Although that's very interesting, but I, I like the combination of the two very much. Yeah. 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 You mentioned ambient intelligence, and I think that the whole concept, I, I'm sure that it was created earlier, but Roberto Marzano and Emil Arts, they published it around early 2000, like 2000 or even a bit earlier, like 1999. And uh, back then, the whole concept was that ambient intelligence is about intelligence in the products, so that the products are so intelligent that we don't have to really do anything. We can just sit on our sofa and just, you know, enjoy ourselves. I even remember that there was this screen from the movie Matilda that Emil was showing when all the appliances are flying around Matilda and she's just pointing her finger on what is supposed to do what. And then I remember much later that Emil changed that story. So he said that actually they thought that it should be about intelligence, but then he said that it should be about adaptability. I very much recognize this evolution basically of Emil's intelligence vision. Obviously, Emil was also a promoter during my PhD uh, uh -huh. project, so we had quite some discussions on, uh, on these type of topics. So if I think about the early... Uh, days in my career uh, when i worked on the image intelligence i worked on this uh, little um, yellow uh, cat 
iCat. I'm not sure if you uh, remember of that. Of course. <laughs> Show me your happy face was always uh, a funny thing we said at work because it's always smiling or it could smile. I think there we had a little bit more the central intelligent character in mind eh, with uh, such a dialogue system at home. And we investigated that for a while. Looking back now, I think a lot of the scenarios or the use cases we evaluated there at that time are now reality, right? Look at uh, Amazon Alexa or uh, Google Home, right? Okay, it doesn't have this nice uh, funny face that I can have. but uh, <laughs> With faces, case, right? With expressions. Yeah, the facial expressions. But still, I think a lot of the use cases we investigated at that time, I think, are now uh, a reality. But um, I think what has changed a bit that yeah, we see now uh, the um, intelligence really distributed everywhere. I think what we also see, and that's also one of the topics in my uh, PhD thesis, is that people are very sensitive to remain in control of their life and of their environments. And I think in the uh, the early days, the, um, the aspiration was a bit to do everything intelligently, right? As you, as you, you said, something like that, putting on a sofa and enjoy yourself and everything happens automatically. I think that uh, was an overestimation of what technology can do and maybe underestimation of how complex or intelligent people are and how <laughs> daily life is and routines, right? It's, our life is not so systematic and so much like a routine as uh, you would expect. So I think that's where the adaptive really comes in, right? So it's much more about continuously monitoring the context, what is going on in the environment and adapting as a system what you offer to the user. I think that's, yeah, well-observed that. Uh, change in that vision yeah mm -hmm. and then your thesis was about user control and when i read that i was thinking that there is this whole idea of intuitive design and it must be something of that in your phd you sent before this list of these topics or questions and i was struggling a bit with this one the intuitive design aspect i think what is uh, important in such a uh, emit intelligent environment is that it's a very complex system and also distributed system. So the behavior of such a system is a kind of emerging of all the different parts of the system that communicate with each other. And as a user, I think that's quite complex to understand, right? So what's the mental model that you have of such a smart environment? It's already, and we know from the studies more on products, it's already difficult to Make sure that people have the right mental model of your system when it's a simple standalone system. So if you talk about a smart building, that's even more complex to get the mental model correct for a user, to have the same mental model as the designer. So what I try to do in my thesis is basically to explore whether we can use the concept of a personality as a kind of, as a kind of guideline for people to know how to interact with a system. So if you look at, for example, how we as humans communicate with each other, I still know you from 10 years ago, both of you. So I know a little bit about your personality because I get continuously these cues from your personality in our conversations. So I also know a bit how I can communicate best with you. At least that's what I think is kind of intuition that you build up as a human, how do you collaborate with each other? So what I try to explore is, if you think about a smart system or smart building, can you design a certain personality for it? communicate that to a user uh, so just that the user understands, okay, I have to interact in this way with this building in order to get done what I need to do. Mm -hmm. So that relates a bit, I think, to intuition. Eh? So helping users to 
follow their intuition in the communication with a smart system or intelligent system. Mm -hmm. So if you go and design the personality of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you can actually get trapped in a building <laughs> forever, <laughs> really, right? <laughs> that is possible, yes. <laughs> So what I did, of course, is I, I asked a lot about uh, the desired personality of such a smart system, right? So, uh, and I did a, a couple of different use cases. I went all the way from a uh, an intelligent product, was a, a robotic vacuum cleaner uh, in that case, up to a automated blind system, so more like a smart building or smart environment. And I tried to find out what kind of personality do people expect? How can you express that in a product or in a product design? And then, of course, evaluate whether this really really helps if you design such a personality or cues about the personality in the product or system. Can people recognize that? And does it help in their interactions with the system? Mm-hmm. And what's the answer? <laughs> uh, this is probably what Bernd cannot talk about. <laughs> uh. And what I can say is that we, for example, taking this last use case that we investigated about the automated blind system. So we did a big study in an office building where there was basically a relatively simple uh, system there were about uh, the blinds that go down when uh, there's too much sun right and it also had a sensor on the wind so if it was very windy it would go up otherwise it would uh, be destroyed and there was a lot of uh, things around energy so if it was too cold or too hot it would also regulate on this one now there was for the user was a very simple button a switch an automatic mode or a manual mode and with the automatic mode and you really get your optimal energy savings eh, because then it's really regulated. So from a company perspective, that would be ideal if people would put it on automatic. But my study showed that 75% of the people permanently switched off the automatic mode, uh, right? And that's, of course, an interesting finding mm-hmm. uh, because in theory, you have a lot of energy savings with the smart systems, but in practice, no. So, of course, interviewing people and, and one of the key things is that people lack the feeling of control. The blinds always go up or down at the moments you don't want. So people were really not happy with automatic behavior and then switch it off to manual and don't bother about it anymore, leaving them always open and then get a lot of sun in and you need to cool additionally in the summer and stuff like that. So that was something that this perception of control, we tried to uh, say, okay, you can do two things. You can give completely manual control, but then you know that you don't get this energy savings, or you could try to make people accept the automatic changes more. And that was basically what I tried to do. And the idea here was a bit related to what I mentioned about this personality. So this decision-making of this blind system is a black box, then people might not accept it. But what if the blind system would explain what it would do to a user in an easy way? Would it then be more acceptable uh, for such a user? What we actually found was that what the way we expressed it, it was not with a funny face like iCat, but we made it a bit more abstract and fitting in the in the office environment. So we made an, uh, basically a, an LED light strip that would visualize in a very clean and easy way for people what the radiation levels of the outside sun were. So you could really see in a very easy way when it would be, let's say, too much uh, sun and the blinds would close down. And then there was a certain uh, light behavior, like a blinking arrow that would then uh, indicate to user, I'm going down now because there's so much uh, sun. It was all no worse, no display, just with light feedback. And we tested out that concept. And then uh, indeed, what we could find was that people uh, accepted the automatic decisions much more just by adding the simple uh, cues about when it would go down and why. Mm -hmm. That was a very interesting finding, right? Because this gives you that idea that with such an, what we call expressive interface, 
you can uh, really uh, make automation and automated system intelligence systems more acceptable from a user point of view. That's very interesting because I'm just realizing that your PhD links with my PhD. I've been working on this concept of social translucence, where you don't really convey a direct message, transparent message to people, but you make it more, it's called mimetic. So it gives you a signal, but it doesn't give you all the details of it. So this is exactly what you are talking about, that you give an indication, but you don't overload people with the need for the interpretation of every message that comes through. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a very important uh, topic. Some colleagues uh, once wrote a chapter in a, in a book, uh, which is called Peripheral Interaction. And that's also um, uh, yeah, from Saskia Bakker and others. Yes. And, and I think... They also wrote some chapter on uh, how you can use lighting as a, a modality, basically, for this peripheral interaction interfaces. We are now surrounded by so many smart devices. If every device notifies us about the decisions it's making, you already see with your phone the thousands of messages you get each day. It's, it's not the way I think we should go. So lighting can play a subtle role in providing you some cues about things without being too obtrusive for people. So I think that's... Uh, Indeed, an interesting interaction. By the way, when you were talking about this building with the blinds, I was immediately remembering sitting in the WDC building in Hightech campus where the home lab was located. I don't know if it's still there. And it was exactly what you were saying. We had this like aquarium-like glass windows and the, the blinds would go up and down whenever they wanted. It was so annoying. <laughs> When I explain my thesis and uh, give this example, everybody recognizes this example, that the blinds always go up or down, but never at the right moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we started talking about intuition here. And if you were to think of like, what is intuition for you? What would you say? That's actually a, a difficult question, I think, huh? to really give a definition of, of intuition. It's about decision-making for me, uh, intuition. So you use intuition for making a decision, but it's not very uh, much a conscious or rational process. It's more based on yeah, your gut feeling, right? It's something that you make a decision based on feeling that is based on previous experiences, but it's not very tangible or, or rational. That's about the best definition I could, I could think about what intuition is. Mm -hmm. And as designers, we always end up, at least I always end up when I think or talk about intuition with the topic of cognitive biases, because they are quite linked, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. We are very similar, I think, but I think uh, intuition has more positive connotation for me, while cognitive bias is negative. At least that is what I uh, perceive it to be. So I think intuition we often see as something positive because it helps you making decision fast because you think it's the right decision. Cognitive bias is something where you make the wrong decision, typically. At least that association uh, it brings with me. So it's also a fast decision, but it's based on maybe an incorrect perception of the reality or some feeling that is not correct. So that's a bit of the difference between intuition and cognitive bias. That, And I also feel cognitive bias is a bit more rational than intuition. Intuition is something that you might not be able to rationalize or explain. It's more like a feeling. Well, maybe cognitive bias, you can still reason about it, but it's maybe based on the wrong assumptions or wrong perception. Mm -hmm. I have a clarification question here, because you said they are the same, but the question is, you agreed that intuition is something that you subconsciously accumulate over time. 
Are the cognitive biases also something that you've learned or they are universal function of human brain? They're universal functions from what I understand. All right. From, so, this, from research, so that's a big yeah. difference between them. Yes, absolutely. Right. They are the ways of our brain to process information, basically. Mm-hmm. Just one thing that occurred to me on a practical level, because somehow I also felt like the cognitive biases is something more difficult to deal with. But on the other hand, if it's universal and you want to overcome them, you might find solutions to that rather than if you would like to counter intuition that has to be different every time for a different person. From what I know about it from Kahneman, and we should have that conversation with Bernd, not between the two of us, that's interesting. I, people don't know who am I looking at. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, so from what I know from the work of Kahneman is that we are wired to have cognitive biases, so we cannot avoid them. We cannot right. trick them. However, what happens is that we are trained as children and young adults to have the rational decision process, that we are still seen as this homo economicus who takes the decisions based on the set of data and the best outcome out of the data. So basically, we are taught to suppress a lot of intuitive thinking through our educational system. And then one of the big troubles with it is that a lot of people find themselves burned out or, you know, in some sort of sickness because they were actually untaught to listen to their intuition. They, they ignore the intuition too long. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I would say that I think the opposite then from what you said, uh-huh. that you can relearn or learn how to listen to your intuition and use it in the right way and know when it fools you, <laughs> because of course it does. And then it will be very difficult to deal with your cognitive biases because they are universal. I was thinking about designing something to counter them, but let's not go there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So intuition connects to experience. And you also mentioned that, that in this intuitive design, you want to use the experiences that people have with certain personalities to be able to control the environment they find themselves in. What are the things that are intuitive to people, like that can be used as design props? Archetypes are one thing. Do you have any other examples of how it can be applied? It's quite a complex question, actually. I can think of is, um, and people are very wired, hardwired to communicate with other people, right? That's an evolutionary thing. So for uh, many, many years, we have evolved to be good in communication with other human beings. So I think those elements you can use in design also with technology. So think about voice systems, for example, when we, we designed voice interfaces 15 years ago or 20 years ago with iCAD, what we tried was to, to make, again, a personality uh, and, and the cues on how the robot interface as iCAD was, how that would behave and whether people would give different type of voice commands based on this personality. So we had one cat that we made a bit more formal, introvert, maybe even a little bit uh, submissive. And that is all in the, in, the, in the body language and all these things. Yeah? And then the other cat was exactly the same hardware, but we just by the way it moves and the intonation of the voice, etc. It's much more extrovert, friendly, open. And we uh, evaluated the different ways of how you then communicate with such a system uh, with voice. And what we found is that when the personality of the device matches with the way you control it in voice, So for the introvert character, in this case, more like a command and control. So you say, uh, now switch on the TV. Uh, While for the uh, extrovert character, uh, people would be much more friendly, extrovert, polite, use many more words to control the device and say, 
hey, I get, can you please switch on my television? And where the other one was much more direct and concise. And that was all based on our intuition, how you interact with a certain uh, character or personality. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting to see how that, uh, how that can change. And with uh, subtle cues, you can actually make people behave in a different way. And that, uh, with the speech technology at that time, uh, the command and control worked much better. So you could say, okay, if we designed to <laughs> or introvert, <laughs> even a bit submissive, that would improve the performance of such a system overall. <laughs> When you were saying this, I was thinking that at the stage of language recognition at the time, <laughs> everything should have been introvert and submissive. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it was a big struggle during the test also. Yeah. yeah. But I, that has improved uh, tremendously. Yeah, if you look now what you can do with uh, a Google Home or uh, Alexa, it's really amazing how this evolved. I also remember seeing using these personality hints used differently. And I think it was a chatbot or something relatively more recent than, than iCut. Someone, don't remember who that was, but they recognized that algorithm behind extracting the meaning of the question was really, it's still pretty shabby. I mean, we are not really good at that. So they dressed yeah. up that bot in a kind of a cute and simple, almost stupid personality, but still cute. So that would be, I'm just a little guy here. I don't know much about anything, but you know, I just have these three questions and then I go away. And if it doesn't work, I will call the big guys. But I'm just small and stupid. Please help me. Yeah, the people are more forgiving then. And that's yeah. also, I think, why at that time with iCat, for example, it was really this cartoon-like cat figure. And you know, cats are stubborn, right? They don't listen very well. So that all fitted very well with the state of the... Uh, <laughs> technology at that time. Uh, so I think that's definitely uh, something that you can use, uh, right, uh, to batch mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I would like to divert our discussion into intuition and the design process, because what we still see quite a lot is that people tend to avoid doing user research and take, they call intuitive decisions about the different designs, different choices, different technological directions and so on. And sometimes, you know, when you have uh, someone who would be Steve Jobs, you might think that this intuition work. But I don't think that we have that many Steve Jobses all around the world. So if you were to say what you think about intuition as justification of choices versus experimentation and understanding how people act and what matters to people, how would you approach that? I think a very nice example that you say, and not everybody is like a Steve Jobs, uh, but a lot of people think they are maybe and can use their intuition to do uh, whatever is right and not do any user research. So uh, I consider myself more a science person or researcher than a designer. So um, I tend to be a bit more in favor of experimentation on uh, data analysis and understanding to have that in favor above intuition. But on the other hand, also, if, if I look at my daily practice, my job at doing research, I think it holds for academia, but especially also in industry, resources are limited, right? So you cannot investigate everything. So uh, intuition is needed or should be used in a lot of cases. In a lot of, for a lot of decisions, you just cannot collect all the data and make this rational decision, but you need to shortcut sometimes. And then I think intuition is a very good mechanism to rely on 
for this faster decision making in, in case of limited resources. And in this case, as we don't call it intuition, we call it experience and still go by the gut feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's very much related to intuition and experience. And indeed, we say that it's based on experience, then I think that's to a large extent true. Eh? So we work a lot also with uh, quite experienced uh, designers. Our research team work together and I don't want to generalize, but uh, often experienced designers have strong intuition, also based on a lot of experience. And this can really help in, in a lot of projects when you have an ex experienced designer that then says, yeah, let's not uh, over-investigate this part. I already know based on my experience that this is the way to go. In the end, I think it's always about about the balance between the two, right? So thinking about what are the core and most important decisions. And for those, you really want to do proper research, in my view. Yeah, a lot of things you could also do more based on intuition. What I see a little bit happening in also the whole new generation of designers uh, coming in, but I think they are much more open to use data and data analytics, for example, in their work. Uh, so you see a lot of young designers that are very capable of doing a lot of A-B testing or these type of things. So just trying to create different things and let the user decide what works best. So you're not saying, I'm, I'm guessing that you are not saying, if I'm, if I'm guessing wrong, correct me, that you use this intuition as I've done a number of research studies before, and therefore I know how certain groups of people behave in certain situations, and therefore we don't have to reinvestigate that particular part again. Am I right? Yeah, so again, it comes a bit back, is it intuition or is it experience based on prior research? That's a bit difficult to say because it's not always that you have exactly studied this particular problem with exactly the same target group or users, but you, of course, have seen a lot of patterns in human behavior with all the tests that you have done over the years. That sometimes is intuition based on your knowledge about how human behave in interaction with technology. So in a way, what you are talking about is you need to feed your intuition in order to have this understanding of these patterns. And then in a way, it's a bit of a choice of food here. For me, it's essential uh, when you design some product or a feature that you engage regularly with consumers, right? What you see a lot of companies doing is they outsource their UX research. What I strongly believe in, and that's why we also have our department in our research organization, the UX research department, is that it's very important for people that create new solutions to get firsthand feedback from users to build up this experience and maybe intuition about what their customers think about uh, what they create. So what I'm really trying to emphasize in our company, instead of defining a research plan, outsourcing it to an agency, get back a report or a PowerPoint with the key findings, rather emerge people, not only UX researcher, but also the developers, the product managers into this process of doing the research. So let them watch the uh, home visits that you do or let them join the interviews so that they can get first-hand feedback from people, build up this feeling for their user group, and in that sense also help them to develop their intuition in making the right choices. I think that's very important. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've noticed in a little bit different context also what happens is when, let's say you have a group of people who want to take a decision together or a common decision. And as long as people start talking from their, or arguing from their intuition or experiences, there is no clear thing that would shift this decision one way or another. It's more about how persuasive you are, who's higher paid, this kind of stuff. But once you put any data on the table, 
that most often than not, it really shortcuts the discussion. Right, so I guess this could be something like this here. When you immerse these people with the real world, in a way you present them data, not in a kind of tabular form, but this is, they're looking at the real world at something that is hard to argue with. More often than not, it will basically make them agree faster. Absolutely, absolutely recognize that. Huh? So you can spend hours on trying to convince people like, yeah, users have said this or uh, users have said this and we should not go that direction. But my experience is that people are much more open when they have heard it directly from the consumer. And it's not that we, the UX researcher, interpret the message that we have heard. So I think that's absolutely uh, important. So recently I was in a conference, a virtual conference, UX Insights. There was one talk about uh, how do you present your research results? And still, I think a lot of people see the PowerPoint deck as a, a default way of presenting your research results, right? So what, what this person has done as she worked at, at Spotify, she, she opened up a, a UX research museum. So basically a whole room with all the data from the UX research put against walls and everybody in the company could have a tour in this museum and get the uh, guided experience through the research data. And I think that is a nice way of a creative way of trying to get your UX research findings uh, much more across with much more impact uh, in the organization. Uh, so I thought that was a very nice inspiring presentation. And, and those are the things I think we also try to do more and more involve broader community into the user experience research than only the researchers themselves. Do you think it is possible to push it too far and have a situation when too much is left to hard data and decision-making based on data that you gather rather than leaving enough room for those intuitive choices rooted in experience? Yeah, that is a danger, right? That once you go into this data-driven culture, then you also get uh, sometimes it's an attitude that everything needs to be underpinned by data and whatever sensible argumentation you give based on intuition or experience, yeah, just show me the data. Then you go too far. Eh? You, don't need, you don't want to get, create such a, uh, a culture. So in the end, I think it's always about the balance between the two. And I think, as I mentioned a bit earlier on the uh, increased use of data, and, and things like A-B testing, data analytics. So I'm working, for example, on the Philips Hue uh, connected lighting, right? Where people use their smartphone to control uh, their lights. And there's a lot of things we can learn about how people use their lights by using it, how they use our apps. So from this data, you can already see a, a lot about the usage of the lights. But if you blindly stare on this data, the data doesn't tell you why people are using it in a certain way, only how often, what they use and how often they use it. So for me, it's always important to combine different type of research methods. So the data can really quantify things. What are they doing? How often are they doing it? But uh, it's very difficult to get the why from the data. And that's why we also always combine it with more qualitative research methods, like just talking to people. <laughs> and why do you do that? That I think is so, so essential. And we should not forget about that. I think it's nice that all these data analytics tools are there and they make our life easier. We can do much more research. But don't forget about the uh, just having a chat with your customer or end user to understand their problems and mm -hmm. needs. It brings me to thinking about artists and their way of using intuition because they don't go out and find this all this data. They just 
somehow are sensitive enough to the world outside of them that they are able to spot these things. And I think that in a way, especially when you are an experienced designer in a research environment, you often kind of are this hybrid between this hardcore data-driven researcher and this artist who actually has all those intuitions about how to create something that's not incremental, but really radical. Do you see that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the moment you said said art, something uh, else popped up with me. It maybe not completely the answer to your question, but anyway, maybe nice to mention. So what we did for one of these studies where we looked into this uh, robotic vacuum cleaner, and one of the questions was: so the default vacuum cleaners would just behave in a random pattern across the the room. So they would just hit and run basically. So they they would go and until they hit the wall, then they rotate a little bit and then move another direction. But it appeared very chaotic, and, and the question was: okay. What if we would have a more structured approach? Would it help that people can understand the pattern? And would, would people rate the vacuum cleaner better? Then we went a bit uh, creative in the uh, the research that we did. Because again, I was thinking about this uh, personality. Could uh, the vacuum cleaner also have a personality? And what type of personality people expect? And how could you express a personality with a vacuum cleaner? That's, uh, that's also <laughs> interesting. You, can, you have, uh, you know, Rosie from the Jetsons, maybe. There's also this robot vacuum cleaner. But anyway. What we did is we invited artists, in this case, from improv, improv theater. There was a group and they, they never used speech to communicate, but they did everything through meme or acting type of uh, things and all improv. What we did then is we gave them a backdrop. So like a, like a little story, backstory about the personality of such a vacuum cleaner. So I, I went creative and I made two different types of personalities for this uh, vacuum cleaner. And then ask them to act out being a vacuum cleaner <laughs> and run, <laughs> run through our home lab and uh, crawling over the floor. And uh, and that was, uh, on the one hand, a very hilarious uh, experiment, but also very insightful because they were very used to use their body and express in certain uh, movements a certain personality or character or whatever. So we recorded all these movements and then later tried to translate the behaviors of the actors into a prototype of the robot. Uh, and that was one of the uh, more creative researches I've done, but which I think <laughs> it's very interesting. And that's why your artist question triggered me about that, uh, I think. And, and there you really see that intuition is very well developed with artists. And I, I would never have been able to do that myself, I think, uh, as I consider myself a bit more researcher than an artist. That sounds funny yeah. and absolutely insightful. Like when you were talking about this behavior for vacuum cleaner, I don't know why, but I had a, an imagine, an impression that you can take a painting like Kandinsky or Pollock or whoever, and then basically look for the pattern there and then just clean the whole space following the pattern from a painting, you know. Oh. <laughs> and if you put a light on top and then you have your camera, you can, uh, with a long shutter time, you can even uh, recreate the painting. Uh, exactly. Uh, and then you, you just change the color of the light and then you just kind of paint with it. Yeah. Ooh. Um, open open source creative commons you can use it (laughs) but these days more of them go like straight up so i know i know again like we got into the era of efficiency with uh, vacuum cleaners and then there will be an era of creative randomness again (laughs) yeah i wonder i would really would like to look into this because maybe this what looks random to us Maybe that was actually really efficient but for reasons that people didn't see the sense in it people still prefer you know vertical and horizontal movements, even if it's less effective, right? Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So we've been already talking a little bit about decision making and, and basically this whole thing on how you 
translate things into products. And one of the things that you do is to translate research findings into business. And this is taking the concepts and making them more rational, right? In a way. Yeah. If you were to share with us, how do you approach that? Like, what is your way of doing this? That would be awesome. <laughs> There's not a simple recipe or something like that to do that. But I've always worked in a research organization in an industrial setting, right? But always the research was a kind of separate unit from the business unit. So the advantage of that is that you're a bit out of the day-to-day -day, uh, business and the urgency of deadlines and and the next uh, product that you look a bit further ahead, which is an advantage because then you can do more proper research and, and think a bit more about the long-term uh, ideas. But what I also see is that innovation for me is not just research. Innovation for me would be that you indeed translate research into a design that you can sell and create business out of and that really people uh, use in the end, right? So, so one important aspect there is timing. If I look back at my career so far, so when we worked, for example, on iCat with these uh, voice uh, use case scenarios. I think in a way we did quite good research at that time, but it was uh, maybe 10, 15 years too early eh? if you look at the maturity of speech technology at that time. So innovation is a lot about the proper timing of things. Uh, what we try to do in our projects is always to have a balance of the more exploratory topics and the more first instances of this longer term North Star or vision that you have into what is the first step towards this North Star direction uh, that we could already launch maybe uh, next year or in two years from now. So if you talk about uh, intelligent systems or uh, smart systems, then you can try to immediately come up with the smart home that uh, takes away all your uh, concerns and makes sure that you can sit down on the couch and, and enjoy yourself, as you mentioned in the beginning. But that's something that's completely irrealistic given the current state of technology. But there's different stepping stones towards such a future, which would be uh, maybe first more into using data or data analytics to give a recommendation on something that happens in your home rather than that directly controlling it. So this way, we always try to set a North Star, but also intermediate steps towards that. And then the intuition part is then to find the right moment to pitch it towards the business or to feel when it's the right moment to push it through, right? And that's something that remains extremely difficult, but I feel I get a little, a little bit better at it uh, over, over the years uh, just because of experience. So what were the learnings that got you to this point when you think that, okay, I have this experience now? The learnings, most of the time you get through failures, right? So quite a number of times I was way too early with uh, something. And then at the beginning, you try harder and harder to convince people that this is a great idea and it should be turned into a business. But at some moments, you also realize that, yeah, it's also about a market or a consumer that should be ready for it, right? So uh, it's often not unwillingness of a person in a business to take it up, but it's also sometimes consumers or people are just not ready for it yet. And I think that's a learning that, yeah, that I got over the years that sometimes you want to go a bit too fast and then and it's better to pace it a bit slower and to, to target in the right time. But you only learn through doing it uh, wrong a few times and then get very frustrated. Why is my great idea not being picked up? Yeah. That's actually interesting because talking about the cognitive biases in research environment, you work with the technological edge so much that you 
cannot even imagine that certain things are not the things that people would accept now that they need another like five or 10 years to be able to even comprehend that these things are useful in their lives. So I think that this is one of the cognitive biases that people working in design research and then technological research fall into very easily. Yeah, indeed. But everybody has his cognitive biases. Eh? So that holds for designers and research, but it also holds for business people, of course. I remember a colleague of mine, uh, so it was about the concept of smart lighting must have been like also in the early 2000s or 2005 that area that we had the demos of colored lighting that you could control uh, at that time with the pda i'm not sure if you still remember the pda of like of course <laughs> yeah, palm pilot i think that we still have a few lying in our drawers <laughs> yeah so we, we pitched that concept like okay there's it's like connected lighting you just from your pocket you can control all the lights in the room and, and with led you could control it in any color and stuff like that the businesses then said, yeah, but who has the PDA? Well, I think it was 2005, 2004. There's no market for that, right? That's just uh, 2 or 3% of the population. And that, um, I think 2006, 2007, uh, iPhone came. Everybody had an iPhone. And then a few years later, another colleague uh, pitched the concept of Philips Hue. I think uh, we've all seen what happened with, with Philips Hue now. Uh, it's, it's one of the biggest successful IT products, I think, uh, out there. And that is all about, again, having the right timing. But also then... At that time, there was a business person that then believed in it and pushed it through. And that's that's crucial and essential to get to a success. So you were talking about the UX Research Museum at Spotify. Do you have like a research idea safe box at Signify where you put these ideas and they are waiting for the ripe time to pitch them? Ah, uh, like a vault of, of good yes. ideas. <laughs> We actually literally had a vault in one of our uh, experience labs uh, before where there were a lot of uh, wooden uh, cabinets where one of my uh, very creative uh, colleagues uh, made all kinds of prototypes of new lighting form factors. And uh, and they were also stored in this uh, vault. And indeed, uh, I, don't, I think we moved to a different building. I think that it doesn't exist anymore. But we had some physical vaults where we stored things. Of course, we also still have uh, digital uh, means to store uh, good ideas, right? So... Uh, we are very active in uh, IP creation. So a lot of the ideas or work that we do ends up in patents and nothing is more patient than a patent that uh, holds for about 20 years. So that's uh, a way to store ideas for the future. But I think also uh, in my current job, I think a lot of the ideas that now hit the market uh, that we collaborate with on with the business to put to market were already explored a few years ago. But yeah, often you revive these ideas uh, when it's the right moment. Yeah, that absolutely is the case. So we've been talking a lot about your role as user researcher or UX researcher, but I would like to dig a little bit deeper into intuition and being a team leader. How mm -hmm. do these two connect? <laughs> yeah, so I have to say I'm not a team leader that long uh, yet. Huh? So I've uh, been a project leader or a team leader in, uh, for a project, but now since about two years, two, three years, also more like a line manager. So you have also other responsibilities than more on the content uh, level of a project. I think intuition plays a bigger role in, in leadership or in uh, people management than in uh, UX research or uh, design, to be honest. I think it also comes back to uh, basically, this, I think the central theme of this topic, uh, intuition, knowing about people's personality and how they interact. I think it also is very helpful as a people manager to understand 
people well and to how they react to certain situations, how you can communicate well with them, how you can trigger them or comfort them, all these things. I think for that intuition or yeah, I'm not sure if it's intuition, I think it's intuition, that helps big time. Another aspect I think is more making decisions that are more long-term or strategic decisions. I think strategic decisions are typically about the longer term and, and the further out it is in the future, the less data or knowledge you have, right? The more uncertainties. So there also, I think uh, intuition is a more stronger asset or thing that you need to make decisions than on a UX research or design level. And if I ask you for the other side of this role that you are playing, do you think that being a user researcher for so many years makes you a better boss now? You should ask the people in my team. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what they will say. Well, I think uh, what, what helps is that people in my team have a UX research background and I also have a user background. So I think I know about the content and I think that helps. Anyway, but also I think the way we are trained as UX researchers, I think uh, good listeners, showing empathy, that are traits or characteristics that you also can use in a uh, in a manager role. Intuition is interconnected with reflection, right? Mm -hmm. How do you see these two working together? I think it's important that you reflect on the decision that you made, right? Based on intuition. I think it's very dangerous if you very strong on following your intuition, but you never reflect. <laughs> it sounds a bit a dangerous recipe to me. Reflection is a way to maybe uh, tune your intuition. So you made a certain decision based on your intuition. And afterwards you look back and say, okay, did I rightfully trust my intuition or maybe my intuition was a bit off. And I feel then you can kind of fine tune your intuition. Uh, if you are, too much uh, convinced about yourself and, and about your intuition, I think uh, you cannot reflect well. So you sh should always be very open-minded and eager to learn and to see what goes wrong or what goes well. And then I think uh, reflection can strengthen intuition. Mm -hmm. So what is your reflective practice? Well, in our company, we work agile. So then you have the retrospective, right? So that's uh, one of the rituals in agile. So uh, that's one way of reflecting, right? We do it every quarter. We do a retrospective with the team, looking at what we have achieved, what goes well, what, what doesn't go well. I think that really helps to make it explicit, reflection. Personal reflection, uh, you're often too busy to do personal reflection. I'm not sure how you experience that, but I hardly sit back and reflect on my life or what I did. Even now in the COVID period, I hear a lot of people, this is the best moment for reflection and to look at where you are in life. But I don't, don't really see it getting less busy or uh, and having more time for reflection these days. So if you were to think about the most intuitive decision that you've ever taken in your life, what would that be? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I have one. I have one. It was about uh, 20 years ago. I was a student and I was living in a student apartment with about 17 people. <laughs> with one of them, I uh, got into a relationship. And uh, everybody around me uh, told uh, Bernd, not smart to do. Getting something with your roommates, very dangerous. If you break up, it will be uh, one of you has to move. Don't uh, do it. Uh, rationally, I uh, agreed with that, but I uh, followed my intuition and uh, persisted in the relationship, so to say. That is roommate is now my wife. So we are <laughs> 20 years later now, I think. We are married, have three kids. So I think uh, that's 
was a decision based on intuition, then I don't regret. Uh, wow. Uh, this is a beautiful story. And I think that, you know, like, interestingly enough, we try to rationalize a lot of things in our business life. But when it comes to personal life, choosing a partner, choosing a house, actually a lot of this is done by intuition rather than this rational thinking. Yeah, strange, yeah, because you would say, okay, for the very important decisions in life, you would follow this rational, conscious process. And if I think now about this question, what uh, the most intuitive decision was actually the, probably the most important decision in your life, right? Uh, yeah. and that is based on intuition. So with the partners, it can go like different ways. But if you think about choosing a house, which is probably the next biggest decision in your life these days, because you'll be paying, you know, for a really long time, we do research and you look at the number of houses, but somewhere deep down, you know, that's the one. Yeah, it's yeah. always a feeling, right? So you step yeah. into the house, you feel this is the one or, or not. Yeah. yeah, this is exactly listening to all those signals suddenly, like the signals that we've been always being provided with, like your stomach and your tension in the shoulders and like, you know, whatever else you get there. And suddenly this is this one moment or like the few moments that we actually listen to that intuition. I know. And then the cognitive biases kick in. So we are happy about these choices in the end, even they are completely rubbish. <laughs> yeah, that, that too. <laughs> Bernd, if you were to recommend a book that you think is really good to either develop your intuition or, or to understand about intuition or to maybe inform your intuitive design or intuitive research, what would it be? I haven't read really a lot of books about intuition, I think, but um, I think a book I, I read recently was a very interesting book I, that I can recommend. It was from Dutch writer, Rutger Bregman. I'm not sure if you, you've heard about him. No. The book is also available in English. It's uh, in English. It's called uh, "Humankind: A Hopeful History." Ah, uh, I heard it, about this book. Yes, yeah, heard uh -huh. about it. Yes, uh, it's quite well known now. He was also on a lot of TV shows and stuff like that, talking about his book. In Dutch, it was called "De Meeste Mensen Deugen," and that's whether your Dutch is still okay. But uh, <laughs> it means that, uh, in essence, people are good. They are good human beings. They are not evil. And uh, I think what he he's doing is is very nice. He describes all kind of experiments done in the past, like in social psychology, but also events like World War, where we all have learned something in history books about what happened there, about people being evil and stuff like that. But he tries to change that mindset around and, and, and tries to explain why certain things happened in a certain way. And also, for example, a lot of the ex experiments uh, that show then that people can harm each other or electrify each other, right, in these uh, social uh, experiments. He uh, falsifies these experiments by talking to the researchers at that time and, and how the research was done, was set up, and that is actually incorrect. And he shows a lot of examples uh, of experiments where actually that shows that people are very good in essence, and they are willing to help each other and support and collaborative. And he shows a lot of studies that show this, uh, but you never hear about it in the press or because it's not so exciting that Mm -hmm. that people generally are good it's much more exciting to hear negative things in the news and i think that's a very um interesting book to read and for me it relates also a bit to intuition because it's also my strong intuition is that the people that i work with i strongly believe that in essence everybody has a good uh, mindset and a good purpose and then you trust people and that that really helps in in working with people and also as a, as a manager for example if you believe that people intrinsically are motivated to do things well and to do good to the world, 
yeah, life becomes much easier uh, also as a manager than uh, when you uh, think people are trying to take it very easy at their job or trying to uh, cheat you or sabotage things and then you try to become a control freak, right? So, But if you believe in the good of humanity, I think that really uh, helps me a lot at least in, uh, in my life. <laughs> so that's a tip I want to give uh, to everyone. Bernd, thank you so very much for this conversation. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's been great talking to you again. Yeah, it's been too long. It's been way too long, yeah. And I, I really enjoyed seeing you again uh, here on screen, but also talking to you and sharing ideas online. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. Like with, I think, most PhD research, there are a lot of answers in it, but I think there are even more questions uh, as a result of this.